Welcome to BS with M. That stands for bite size, not bullshit. This is a research-based sex and relationships podcast delivered to you in bite-sized episodes under 15 minutes so you can pick up what I'm putting down. This is not your standard dating podcast. I'm bringing in experts from the field and getting down and dirty into all the topics on sex and relationships in a no BS way, which is just my style. Releasing every Thursday so I can send you off feeling some type of way for the weekend. Nothing's taboo, nothing's off limits. Let's get down to business. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about sex education around the world. That is a big one to tackle. If you know me and my background, it is in researching sex education and more specifically here in Australia. And I focused on intersex issues. Intersex people are the I in LGBTIQ+, in that acronym. And I will be doing an episode on my research specifically, but this is going to be more focused on sex education around the world. I do know in here that we actually don't have any research based in Latin and South America. That is mostly because there's really limited research around this topic. That is something I wanted to know right before we go. So first I'm going to run through some rapid fire facts all about sex education around the world. So those are our quick facts and then we're going through a systematic review today. It's just one review to cover which covers sex education more in depth in a few different countries. Now I want you to reflect on your own experiences and your own sex education even as I'm going through the sex education that's available in other countries. So we're starting off in China, and in China they're experiencing an increase in deaths due to HIV, but sex education is not compulsory. What I found really interesting was that Chinese universities or colleges, as we would say in the US, they've actually installed vending machines which sell HIV kits. Supposedly there's a story of a couple in China who laid next to each other for three years in the hopes of falling pregnant. In India, again, sex education is not compulsory, but sadly, reports indicate that over 50% of children between 5 and 12 have been sexually abused. It also has one of the highest rates of HIV in the world. Now, in the Netherlands, we love the Netherlands, those beautiful liberals. Here, from the age of four, children are given age-appropriate information, including the correct terms of anatomy. And did you actually know that just by knowing the correct names of body parts, children are more likely to participate in consensual sexual activity, and they're actually less likely to experience sexual assault, and they also understand boundaries as well, and there's not shame around talking about things like their penises and their vulvas, okay? So if you have any children in your life and you've been teaching them silly terms like willy for a penis, please stop. It's actually really important that they do understand the correct names of body parts. And again, it's important that we don't actually shame children for touching them or for talking about them because that shame can create this space where they feel unsafe to talk about things like this. One of the first lessons in the Netherlands is on consent, which is interesting. I don't know about you, but I never heard that word in my high school sex education. In Scotland, we love this news. They just voted to include LGBTIQ plus rights into school curriculum. And they're based on my short amount of research that I did in my latest research project. They are really revamping the school sex and relationships education. We love that. As of September 2020, RSE or Relationships and Sex Education is mandatory in all English schools. And that does include sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, the guidelines around sex ed in English schools 
schools is a little bit loose, but it's something that they are working on. In New Zealand, sexuality is one of the key seven areas in health and physical education, but it's been criticized a little bit for its one-size-fits-all approach. But good old Prime Minister Jacinda, she's at it again making changes in the world. She's working with the government and health officials to adjust the curriculum. Here in Australia, we have guidelines which say we must teach sex and relationships education, but the depth that this information is taught, it's super loosely monitored. In my work, in my research, I talked to people who actually built the curriculum and there was huge struggle in the fact that most sex and relationships education here is considered sensitive and therefore it actually requires parents to sign off for approval for the lessons that they're teaching. Now, this is a huge challenge for already overworked teachers. They're expected to cover a wide range of topics in their curriculum along with the sex education content. So because the guidelines are really loose, it's also really hard for them to understand what's appropriate and what's required in the classroom. Something I do want to point out as we go through all of this is the load that is put on teachers as well. I want you to understand that this episode is not to disrespect teachers because they are doing incredible work. But as we'll get to in the end, it is kind of up to us to implement some more relationships and sex, even communication and conversations to help the situation overall. Now, this one's a bit shocking. In Uganda, the government declined a proposal to administer contraception to those 15 and over. And that same proposal asked to be delivering sex education starting at age of 10. But they declined it, claiming it would promote promiscuous behavior. But over 25%, so that's one quarter of women aged 15 to 19 fall pregnant in Uganda. Over in the US, over 45% of students say they didn't learn about birth control before having sex for the first time. Yikes. Under 50% of states actually include information about HIV in their curriculum. Sex ed is also predominantly focused on abstinence. Uh, Mine was as well. (laughs) No sex until you know that they're the person that you want to marry, okay? In Australia, over a third of female students had experienced unwanted sex. Adolescents today are actually reaching puberty at an average of two years quicker than they did historically. So that's a big call for earlier recognition and earlier implementation of sex education. There's this thing called the 1994 International Conference on Population and Developments Program of Action, which is a mouthful. (laughs) Now, in 1994... Okay, they highlighted the roles of governments to offer sex ed to young people to promote teenage reproductive health. Yet, of course, as we can see, even from the above, inconsistency exists in related initiatives in the global context. So although there are rules and guidelines saying, yes, you must offer sex ed, to which extent does that mean? So I'll give you an example and What I focused on, again, was the LGBTIQ plus population in sex ed. Because teachers are feeling, and we'll get more into this when we cover that episode, but because teachers are feeling this really, like, it's a big pressure on them, but it's also so sensitive to discuss these topics, right? So if they're not written in the guidelines and teachers aren't instructed on how to actually teach this information, can you just imagine that pressure? And that's why we're seeing these gaps in sex ed and relationships ed. So now what do students actually say about sex ed? We'll do a whole nother episode on that because there is a lot to cover, especially for those beautiful LGBTIQ plus students. But I found a couple of notes on students' feedback, which were sad. The first one was just, this student said, I had a gym teacher say it's impossible to have sex with a woman if she didn't want to because the hole closes up. And then he went to jail. The next one says, men are completely incapable of controlling themselves is what he was told. 
They made it sound to everyone like we had no control over our bodies, thoughts, or actions, and that we spray urine and semen at everything that crosses our path. Now, with the understanding that teachers may or may not be instructed on how to actually teach relationships and sex education, we also recognize that a lot of this content, it's left up to the teachers to decide what they are and aren't comfortable on, and a lot of what is taught in the classroom does reflect what the teacher really believes. So that is scary as you can see from even just those two comments. Onto the climax, the major research is just one article, and it's from a systematic review. So if you don't know what a systematic review is, it's basically where researchers, they search a bunch of databases to find primary research. Primary research is where, for example, I would go and do a survey to answer a certain question. I would get all of the feedback, and I would collate my results and do an analysis of that. In a systematic review, we have inclusion and exclusion criteria, and basically we're trying to find clues to answer a certain question using that primary research. So we put it all together into a beautiful package, and we call it a systematic review. Okay, so in this review, the researchers compared sex and relationships curriculum in two English-speaking countries, so in the US and the UK, as well as the Chinese-speaking countries of Hong Kong, mainland China, and Taiwan. Now, the types of sex ed being taught included abstinence, or abstinence only until marriage, which means no sex until marriage. And here, contraceptive methods are either not discussed or they're discussed with biased background, which discourages the use of contraceptives as a method to avoid pregnancy and or STDs. Now, it's important to note that abstinence doesn't cover kissing, masturbation, oral and anal sex, but what's interesting there is that you can get STDs from oral and anal sex, so that is a dangerous gap in abstinence education. Now, in what we call comprehensive sex education, which is the other type of sex ed, abstinence is included, but it's not really emphasized. Relationships, gender, social pressures, and even more information there is discussed. Now, communication and decision-making skills might be taught, and I want to recognize here that although it says comprehensive sex education, a lot of times in the research I've done, comprehensive is not such because it doesn't include LGBTIQ plus issues. And I will keep on saying that until, well, until the end of this podcast. Okay, so in the report, they first reported on the US. So school districts decide on sex ed curriculum. So a district, for anyone that doesn't know, is simply a set of schools within any given area. In 2014, there were 16 critical topics proposed for the sex ed framework in the US. None discussed LGBTIQ plus issues specifically or relationships. But in the end, anyway, less than half of the high schools in the US actually covered the 16 topics proposed. So... They really took that advice, didn't they? In the UK, there's no standard as far as the type of curriculum being provided. Content may be based around abstinence, it might be comprehensive, or it might be all around terrible. <laughs> in general, the UK right now focuses on abstinence, marriage, and fidelity. Again, there's no LGBTIQ plus issues that are required to be discussed. That is not to say they're not being discussed. Porn's not discussed, nor is sexting or any modern day issues in this beautiful world of sex. In Hong Kong, Sex ed is super, super under-researched. So there were studies in the late 80s and 90s, but the last effort to better understand how sex ed is affecting youth in Hong Kong, it just reported that, very simply, more young people were having sex, but with insufficient information and support from school. Teacher training is extremely limited, and there's no surprise there, and sometimes they're even teaching themselves on the internet. So they're leaving it up to the internet and to the content they find there to teach themselves how to teach students about sex. In mainland 
China, they had a really good start in the 50s and 60s. So they identified sex ed was vital in sexual physiology. And then in 1963, the government made it required to teach scientific sexual information to students. And I do note here that a lot of times one of the gaps that we're having in sex ed is that it's very biological rather than (laughs) covering any of the other topics that we're talking about here, like pleasure and relationships and communication and consent. But then in the Cultural Revolution, sex became banned from all aspects and abstinence now is promoted widely, but once again, the guidelines on sex ed are super loose. Now, we love what Taiwan has done. Teachers are trained more heavily in sex ed and they focus on things like gender education, theoretical knowledge, and practical skills. So there's even training and conferences and events for schools in the public, which have been taking place since the 1990s and it's all around relationships and sex education. So as you can probably see from the above, sex education is really lacking and our depth of sex education and our inclusion is really lacking. So I just want you to think here about your own sex ed and what was taught to you in school or at home and in your community. And I want you to reflect on the advice that you got and the type of curriculum you had. Was it comprehensive? Was it abstinence-based like mine? Mine was very much so don't have sex (laughs) Um, or you might get an STD. And I even remember one time in class, the only sex ed I remember having was we had kind of, and these are available today, but it was an independent group of basically sexual education instructors or teachers. And I remember the only activity I remember was that we split into two, like two groups in the classroom. One group had to scream penis as loudly as they could. And the other group had to scream vagina as loudly as they could. Now, first of all, the anatomical term that you actually should be using instead of vagina is vulva, (laughs) number one. And number two, I think although I understand their intention was to make us more comfortable talking about body parts, it actually becomes kind of like a laughingstock. Like think about you and your friends when you're younger, just screaming words as loudly as you can, then you just start laughing. And it's actually, there are things that are funny, yes, but if we teach students that quote unquote private parts and sex and relationships are funny, then it takes away the serious points around sexuality and it kind of takes some, I think, some of that credibility out of that education piece. So that was a really interesting lesson and I actually never had to put a condom on a banana. So I feel like I kind of missed out there personally, not that that's super useful anyway. Now, after you reflect on your own sex education and maybe your own learned behaviors from that education, I want you to think about what you think would have happened if someone actually taught you about relationships and pleasure and contraception and monogamous versus non-monogamous relationships and consent and harassment and how different your viewpoints would be, right? You'd probably have more understanding of other people's values and you might be more open to communication around sex and relationships. Also, this podcast and the content we have here would probably be no surprise and we wouldn't even necessarily need it because you might have been taught a lot of this content anyway. I want you to also think about how we can start teaching people at a younger age. And when I think about how much time it's going to take for the governments down to the school curriculum writers, down to the teachers to transform this lacking sex education into adequate sex and relationships education. It's going to be a long time. It's going to be a hot minute. So we as a community and as single voices need to come together to start talking about this and we need to start spreading messages around consent and respect and boundaries and body parts and pleasure and safe sex. We also need to support those teachers 
leaders and we need to support young people in better understanding themselves and relationships and sex so that we can all move forward into a more sex positive world. Now that is a little bit on sex education around the world. As you can see, we've got a lot of work to do, don't we? That's all for today. Just remember sex education is not taboo. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I'm Em and you can catch more on my socials at emilywalter underscore. The research referenced in this episode is available in the show notes. Please remember to like and subscribe because it supports the podcast and it also tells me you're listening. Now I encourage you to spread the message that nothing's too taboo.